0: Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors and brought to you by the generous support of the Tennessee Valley Authority. To learn more about TVA's impact on our community, follow TVA on Instagram, at TVA, and on Twitter X, at TVA News. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Craig Fuller. Craig is the CEO and founder of FreightWaves, the leading source of market intelligence for the global supply chain. Craig, welcome to my morning cup. Before we talk about how your career resembles a plane flight, which includes both smooth skies and some turbulence, let me ask, what's in your morning cup?
1: You know, I uh, typically wake up for coffee, uh, black. I don't like anything else on it. And uh, carbonated water.
0: Do so you know what? You're right up my alley. I'm black coffee, except I'm decaf.
1: So it's, uh, I like it, you know, pretty boring in the morning.
0: <laughs> I I don't know about boring, but it gets you going and gets you started. I am
1: not a morning person. I am excited to, to know that TBA is sponsoring this podcast. I think TBA is the, one of the reasons that Chattanooga has been so successful as a city. Yeah. And we owe them an enormous amount of respect. So it's cool that they're, uh, they're sponsoring this.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. They joined us uh, this year, saw what we were doing, liked what we were doing. And you're right. If it wasn't for TVA, who knows where East Tennessee and the Valley would be?
1: Yeah, I think it's often underappreciated how impactful it is to the local community. Everything from, you know, generating power, obviously, we we benefit greatly from that economic development, but also as an organization that uh, protects the environment, and we benefit greatly from, from their efforts.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of impactful, I think you've had a bit of impact yourself. Um, I've found what you're doing now extremely interesting, but in talking about what we do on this podcast and careers, I, I find your backstory equally as interesting. You're a pilot at 13. How do you become a pilot at 13?
1: You go out to the College Dale, Tennessee airport, <laughs> and uh, you asked I asked my dad to let me fly, uh, go up and be a pilot, learn to fly, and he drove me out to the airport. And then everything else is history. I did, you know, I was doing lessons through high school, but I think a lot of my passion and love for airplanes came from Microsoft Flight Simulator that came out in like the 80s and Top Gun. The original type. The original. Yeah, so it's uh, it's fun to see it back. Like, yeah, uh, and even Microsoft Flight Simulators released the new version of it. But I've been flying for you know three decades.
0: That is something that um, I just find amazing because I've always been a little fearful of heights, but I feel secure in an airplane.
1: It is very uh, strange. There's a lot of people who are scared of heights, but then when they get in an airplane, there's some something about it. Uh, That gives them a lot of uh, a lot more confidence, you know, because they can sort of understand the mechanics of it, particularly in the front of the airplane. And in fact, I find people who are scared to fly commercial airliners that are actually more comfortable in a small plane. Now, what they don't know is it's actually, you know, a commercial airliner is honestly one of the most safe places you can be, whereas small aircraft are tend to more prone for accidents.
0: Well, I'll remember that next time. Yeah, (laughs) so it's a little
1: a little (laughs) switch, but a lot of it has to do with control because, like, when you're in a small airplane you're literally up front and you're near the controls and you sense that, and you can sort of see where you're headed. Whereas in a a commercial airline, there's a lot of mystery. You don't know if the pilot's flying the right direction or uh, what's happening because you're in the back.
0: Well, before we get into your career, I just want to say one more thing about flying. I used to get a little unnerved with turbulence until I, and I think it was a commercial airline pilot told me one time, he says, you got to look at turbulence like going down a road with a lot of potholes because that's, Kind of all it is, is you're just hitting a rough
1: patch. That's right. You know, it is just a little bit of unstable air. You know, it's just an environmental thing.
0: Yeah. And that's another term I like, unstable air. But let's talk about your career. You grew up in a family business. We were talking a little bit earlier. Went to Macaulay. That's correct. And is flying what took you to Baylor? It was actually entrepreneurship. So I- Baylor University.
1: Baylor University. Yeah. So it's weird because my friends that were at Macaulay and GPS- I go. I write about Baylor on Facebook and they're like, wait, did you like switch? <laughs> Do your kids go to Baylor school? And the answer is no. Uh, I went to Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and it was because they had entrepreneurship and international business is what I ended up majoring in. But the time that I was looking at uh, majors, they had aviation, they had an a- aviation aerospace program and they had telecommunications. And I was always interested, enamored with The concept of satellite communications. This is sort of the 90s, if you remember, Mm -hmm. when fiber optics were coming and satellites were starting to become ubiquitous and GPS. I was sort of interested in the space technologies that were out there. And uh, Baylor happened to have both majors. I didn't major in either of those things. I ended up majoring in international business and entrepreneurship. And uh, so a little different, but that's the way careers go. That's the way majors go.
0: Right. Very, very few people are doing what they no, Set out I have to do. My
1: my seventeen year old son is looking at colleges, and I often tell him there's a couple of courses I would recommend he take, which is in finance, because I think it's something I use every single day. But the reality is, most of it is just about getting experience.
0: Now, you, you went to Baylor International Business and Entrepreneurship, and you got a little bit of entrepreneur in your blood at Baylor, didn't you? Starting a laundry delivery service? I
1: did. We had an entrepreneurship class and we had to start a business, which was fun for me. Yeah. And I did a, uh, we called it a laundry posse, uh, <laughs> which was, we picked up laundry for students and we would drop it off at a place called BMC Fold, which means nothing except when you find out that Chip Gaines was my business partner, Chip Gaines and Chip and Joanna, if you think about the, uh, you know, the empire that has become the Magnolia empire uh in Waco, Texas. They're the do-it-yourselfers. They're the do it yourselfers. Uh now they have their own network called Magnolia, but they're the ones that, you know, Ship Lap was yeah. sort of their their thing, their calling card. Uh Joanna was in um a lot of classes I was in at Baylor. She was in the same age. And uh Chip owned the little wash and fold place in Waco. And um what's funny is I had done business with this guy And I had completely forgot about it. I'm, you know, I'm watching this show and still not, and he looked familiar, but like I thought, well, maybe from Waco or he just has that look. And I happened to read an article about him and it talked about his background. I'm like, you know, that's funny that I, uh, (laughs) that I actually had partnered with him. He was my first business partner way back when. Now we weren't, he didn't have any equity in the business, but he was doing, doing all the work.
0: Have you reconnected with him? No, I
1: haven't. You know, it's been 20 some odd years. It's not as if we were that close. He tried to sell it to me. (laughs) <laughs> like he sent me the proposal. He was trying to sell the Washington Pole business. Um, but,
0: you know, I don't know if I wasn't ambitious enough in college or if I was just misdirected because I've talked to a couple people now, like yourself, who've started businesses in college where, quite frankly, I was lucky to get to class. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I think, you know, if you look at entrepreneurs, it is common for an entrepreneur to actually have started businesses when they were younger. Yeah. So, I did that. I mean, I sold contraband fireworks at school. I uh, (laughs) uh, sold candy to the neighbor. We lived in in Mountain Shadows, which was a a growing neighborhood in those days. And there was a lot of construction on our street. We're the first house on our street. So there was a lot of construction workers. I would go to Sam's Hotel and buy like boxes of M&Ms and Snickers and stuff and Cokes and sell it. You know, take my, I had a moped and would take, you know, this candy over and people would buy it. So would you just go door to door? I'd go door to door. Yeah.
0: Was this unique to you or did any of your siblings join in?
1: It was just unique to me. I was definitely the entrepreneur. None of my brothers were entrepreneurs. It was I was the only entrepreneur in the family. Now, my dad is an entrepreneur. I mean, he got fired from his dad and started U.S. Express right. uh, back in 1985. And then my grandfather, sort of the patriarch of long-haul trucking, and uh, had been an entrepreneur as well. So a lot of the reasons that Chattanooga has such a big trucking industry Is largely because of my family, yeah. Uh, but it's been multiple generations. And I think the family tradition is uh, the father is supposed to fire the son (laughs) and 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 basically leave them with nothing but, you know, their knowledge of the business to go start something. So it's sort of a family tradition.
0: Well, and, and it's a great way to learn too, because you you don't have anything else. You got to walk. sink
1: or swim. Yeah, you're cut off from the family, and you got to go do it. So,
0: well, let's talk about your U.S. Express experience. You grew up in a family business, U.S. Express. Your grandfather started uh, what was it, Southwest?
1: Well, he um, I don't know if he started Southwest, matter or bought it, but he may have started it. I don't remember. It was I was I, he had a couple of trucking companies. Yeah. One was called a company called Countrywide, which he sold to a railroad, and even the Countrywide Mortgage Company that. He had licensed the name. He sold them the name to license it. So he was around trucking. He was sort of the long-haul pioneer in long-haul trucking. And then its I think he bought Southwest Motor Freight. I don't think he started it, uh, but it was his business. He ended up selling it to a guy who embezzled a bunch of money, ended up serving prison time. And my dad was an executive. He'd stayed on the business and left that business. And uh, him and David Parker and a guy named Pat Quinn went out, started a company called USA Leasing, and then after six months, David Parker, who is now the CEO, went out to start Covenant, uh, which is my step-uncle. Uh, and my dad just, I guess they didn't agree and, on how things should go. And he went out and started Covenant. My dad started U.S. Express. And in the past year, he has sold U.S. Express. Uh, and so we sort of bookended that story.
0: So when you got out of Baylor, you went to work at U.S. Express? Yeah, I
1: actually uh, didn't graduate. So I in 2001, U.S. Express started an air freight business in Texas, all over the country. And they had a problem with the salesperson that was running the Texas territory. And I had worked in the business. I'd worked in the business since I was a kid. I mean, I was the first U.S. Express's first help desk technician, running wires, Ethernet cables, um, doing odd in, you know, loading software. I was, you know, the first help desk guy. And uh, so I had been around the business, and I had worked in various positions in the company during summers and on weekends and things. So I had always sort of been around the the trucking business. I was the only one of the family that had done that. And um, U.S. Express had started this air freight division, and I wanted to go be a part of it. It was cool. So I actually dropped out I didn't finish I didn't drop out of school because I in college you don't have to yeah. drop out you just leave right you leave and you go work and uh, I did I the last semester I had 11 hours left and I went and uh, joined the air freight business and I was found out I was really good at sales. Um, I was a hustler um, the thing is I was also quite lazy I'm inherently pretty lazy. I would like wake up at like 1 p.m and I would go to work at three and then I would when I was selling air freight I was selling it to all the air freight forwarders around the airports and I was my DFW in Austin were my territories. And so I would call up all of the local air freight forwarders, which were all clustered around the airport. You can go by any major airport. You can see all these air freight companies. And I would invite them to happy hour. And I learned that, and a lot of them were younger folks that didn't have families, but they ratted a lot of freight. And I learned that I could not work very hard. I could do all my sales calls at the bar. (laughs) And I would open up a tab and I cleaned up and I became the most productive sales rep in the business. Uh, My territory went from like, the 12th largest territory in the country to the second. And I, and like there were Chicago was number one. There were four sales reps in there and I'm like 21 years old cleaning up because I learned that I could buy drinks for people and they would do business with me. And that was my first sort of foray into sales. And uh, I also became the truckload guy around the airport because of my trucking experience. And so these air freight people would call me up and say, Hey, I need a truck and I don't care what it costs. And I was like, so I figured out I could side hustle trucks by selling them these trucks. And I did. And uh, I had this business idea I went to my dad with that I was going to start my own business, effectively a freight broker. And he's like, look, I am the CEO of a public company. I can't finance it. But if you want to start it inside of my company, I'll let, let you know, I'll help you out. Sort of patted me on the head, thinking yeah. that it would turn into a disaster. Like <laughs> It's like a project to teach me how to start a business. Uh, in two years, we built that to $140 million in revenue and $68 million in profit. It was 83% of U.S. press's profitability in the second year of operation. And what is it you were doing? We were basically going to companies and saying, we'll provide them as many trucks as they wanted within six hours. And the whole business model was something I learned from the air force, because I would go hang out with these air freight people at the airport and having beers with them, and they're bragging about how much money they made on a truck that I sold them. So they would make six, dollars $7,000 profit. I was happy with my $150 yeah. that I had made in profit. And what they were doing was they were selling capacity when price did not matter. And I learned this game from them is that there were moments in supply chains and in freight when price does not matter. And so I had this idea that I could go start a business that basically exploited that part of the market. And so I started this thing and all the executives sort of blew it off. Like they thought it was, you know, it's Max's son coming here. This little punk kid coming here. What's he going to do? So when I first started it, they weren't providing me any resources or trucks. And so I I went to my dad, like I complained, like, Hey, I'm not getting any support here. You know, I'm being set up for failure. So as a way to sort of prove that I couldn't do anything, they made a rule, which became stupid on their part, that I could have any truck in the system because they wanted to prove that I couldn't sell. Because Texas was one of the worst territories for U.S. Expresses in, in those days. And it was basically a market that U.S. Express couldn't succeed because they had a really bad sales rep that was managing the territory. And so they, they were convinced that nobody could sell freight out of Texas, which was dumb. Just a bad market. Just a bad market. They just had the wrong person. Yeah. And so they made this rule that I could have as many trucks as I wanted within six hours of 60 U.S. major markets and it was set up. They were basically trying to prove that they had done everything possible to help me out. And we cleaned up (laughs) and like, we made a ton of money and it was me and like two people when we started it. And, you know, within a year and a half into it, two years into it, we'd had a hundred people. And uh, we ended up taking over FEMA's disaster logistics business because we won that contract. And we were making a lot of money just basically providing trucks when nobody else would. It's, it's sort of the the way to think about this is, you think about the airline business model. And as, a, as an airplane fan, I've always been enamored with airlines and how they do their businesses. Uh, my dream was to own an airport as a kid. And then I realized airports don't make a lot of money. So then I went on an airline, which I then I realized airlines <laughs> don't make a lot of money. But I always studied the airline's business models. And I think what's really interesting about the airlines is they have built this model where if you book something early, then... It's cheap, and if you get later in, into a decision, because what they realized is that consumer travelers tend to book early. Someone planning a vacation is not going to do it overnight. But the business travelers, and so they've created a lot of sort of price discrimination based on how fast or how much you need to book it. Now they do that. The science behind these airline models are much more sophisticated today, where they look at your IP address or what kind of browser. Like if you if you try to buy an airline ticket on a Mac browser. On a Mac, you're going to pay a higher price than on a PC. Just really interesting things. They look at the version of software you have in your browser. They look at where your IP address is. There's a lot of science behind this stuff today where they become pretty advanced in it. But one of the most basic rules is how fast and advanced you book your airline ticket. Um, Even day of the week matters. But I realize that there is a point in trucking where companies will pay anything to get a truck moved. Because if they don't, they're going to shut down a factory or... You go into a store and they don't have product. And so I realized that that's how these air freight forwarders are making all their money was selling a truckload as an air freight price. And, and air freight goes about 40 times the price of a truckload. So I realized these guys are making a fortune on the work I'm doing. So the idea was we went in and told companies, we'll give them as many trucks as they wanted within six hours. And oftentimes I was laughed out at, at these meetings because like, who would pay that? And like, <laughs> they will. I remember we went out to Clorox, um, it was US Press's largest account back in 2002 or something. And I'm sitting down with the chief of supply chain of Clorox, uh, runs global supply chain. Uh, her name was Mary. I don't remember her last name. And she's like, you know, Craig, this is not we spent all day with them. It's an interesting business model, but we'll never use it. We plan all of our capacity out really well. So I'm walking outside after dinner with this guy who represented, he was the US press sales rep for the called on Clorox. And he's, he's ap- very apologetic. He's like, man, I thought this would go well. Like we do a lot of business with them. I'm sorry to waste your time. And I looked at him and said, she'll call. He's <laughs> like, how do you know? I said, because she's going to get in trouble one day. And I'm the only person to say yes. Two weeks later, I'm driving from St. Joe, uh, Michigan to Chicago to catch a flight. And she's on my phone. It was a seven o'clock on a Friday. And she's like, I need a white night. And she's like, we had this Kingsford coal plant that has a problem. And I have 60 truckloads that I can't find a truck for. I need someone to help me. And I said, Mary, you know how this works? And she said, yes. I said, okay, well, if you're willing to pay the price. And that was the business model. I mean, I remember we went into Walmart and Walmart said, this is how we do business. And I was like, well, this is not how I do business. Let me tell you how we do business, Yeah. which was like, when you call us, we will charge you whatever the market will bear and you'll pay it. And I remember getting just these companies, these big, very successful executives of these huge brands were like, who is this punk kid telling me how I'm going to pay? And it was because I knew that nobody else would provide that service. And so we made a lot of money in that. And that was sort of my first understanding of how the market worked. Because when you're offering, you know, is a commodity and ultimately when you're able to offer someone any amount of trucks, there are points in decisions where they will pay anything. So we had to get really good at forecasting where demand would be because we had to get ahead of demand. Uh, I remember one time it was Home Depot. It was a, it was Thanksgiving Day. And I worked seven days a week. Like I say that I'm lazy, but I'm lazy about certain things. I'm not actually, you know I probably worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week. But I remember I was in the office on Thanksgiving. And we got a call. And Home Depot needed 100 trucks out of the Savannah, D.C. Because the marketing department, this is when, pla- you remember when plasma screens were like $20,000? They were running a promotion on plasma TVs at Home Depot, which is a strange thing. But they had done this. And the marketing department forgot to tell the logistics department about this promotion that had to be in the stores by 6 a.m. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And Home Depot did not care what it cost to get these truckloads moved because the guy in charge of supply chain is going to get fired if these trucks aren't there. So that was our game. And we charged them, you know, we made like $6,000 a profit per truckload. I mean, it was insane. This was, we printed money and, you know, Nissan had a, there was a strike in Japan that caused a sill shortage. And we were just, I mean, Nissan, we made $11 million in profit in one month, of just providing trucks when nobody else would do it.
0: And when you say, because you use the term sell them a truck, you're not selling them that no, no, truck. No, no, selling, selling capacity. capacity
1: selling capacity when nobody else would do it. Yeah.
0: And so you're matching up their need to get something moved. Correct.
1: Like plant shutdowns, I remember we were walking through a uh, warehouse in El Paso, Texas, and I, the guy, it's at a Phillips Electronics Distribution Center, and I was largely intact with the U.S. Express sales reps.
0: Mm-hmm. Was this Express Direct? It was
1: XD, 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 Express Direct, yeah. Express Direct was the division of U.S. Express. And I remember we were walking the floor, and the sales rep that I was with did not had not met the guy that was at Phillips, and he's like, well, what happened to whomever? And he said, oh, he got fired. And uh, I'm the new guy. And there was a conversation about why he got fired. And he's like, well, he couldn't get trucks moved. There was apparently an issue on Christmas Day. They needed something for Black Friday. And they tried to hit two truckloads out of El Paso. had to go to Dallas to a Best Buy distribution center. And he didn't have capacity. And he lost his job because he didn't meet it. And I made some comment, like, you should have called XD. He's like, we did. He's like he called XD and he got turned down, and he's offered forty dollars a mile. And put it in perspective, a typical truckload is about a dollar these days, about dollar fifty. He offered forty bucks a mile. In fact, he talked to a kid on the phone. He's like, "I'll send you a a plasma screen myself (laughs) to your house if you say yes." And there was a problem. So the business model, we never said no. Like literally, I had a rule that if you said no to a truck, uh, turning down a customer. You would get fired. But it was a new kid. It was Christmas Day. He didn't know the rules. He'd only been working for a few weeks in this job. And he couldn't get anyone in load planning to give him a truck. But I said, like, look, there's a lot of solutions to this. We could have chartered an airplane and flow tune drivers out there picked up the truck. That was what we did. And that was how we made money, was when everybody else said no, like you're talking about shutting down a car plant yeah. that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute and loss utilization. You're talking about inventory stockouts. I mean, that Phillips electronic issue according to them, cost them a couple million dollars by Best Buy for fines for they didn't meet yeah. the distribution. So there are times when you literally have situations in a supply chain where companies will pay anything to get it moved. So you were the last resort. We were the effectively the 911 operator. And we knew it. And we're the only tr- major trucking company that had enough capacity to actually make a difference in the market. So everybody called us. And that was where I learned the freight market, the yeah. volatility of it. And we got really good at anticipating markets that were going to start to heat up. Um, there was times in that business where, uh, and we would track phone calls, but we were missing at one point, a thousand calls a day inbound to the call center that we couldn't pick it up. And we had, were tracking, like for every call we picked up, it was like a couple thousand dollars in margin. And so it was insane. And I was 22. Wow. The 22 year old punk running this business. And I thought I was awesome. Yeah. Like you can imagine having this great success, part of this billion dollar company built this super successful division, what that did to my ego. Oh yeah, I bet. And you know, it's the, it's the hype before the fall. <laughs> so the problem was we were disrupting the business in ways that it, the entire management structure was completely uncomfortable with. So they, all the executive management wanted rid of me. I was a problem at this point. And, um, the
0: executive management at, at US, US Express. Express yeah. So
1: my brother and my, and I think my dad was sort of like, you know, sort of, anyways, so I sort of got pushed out of that business. And, um, as I got pushed out, I ended up leaving and, uh, US Express has started a fuel card that's now known as TransGuard. And I took that and, and built my own business. But I would tell you what I didn't understand and appreciate at the time is having all of that infrastructure at US Express yeah. enabled me to be successful. It wasn't me. It was like, I had the energy and the passion for it, but it wasn't me that actually was the reason that business was successful. And I got to learn that the hard way as I went out and did my own thing.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up about the support that you have in a large company. We talked to Brian Elrod, who has text requests, actually across the street from me. And he made a comment early on when in our conversation of he couldn't afford to be an entrepreneur. And it related more back to not just the intellectual properties that you need to do it, but all that support that you need to do it too. And he learned all those things by working in corporate America before going to do it. So what was your experience when you left uh, XD and started Transcard?
1: I mean, it's a totally different world when you, you you know, you have to figure out all, like there's a lot of infrastructure that oftentimes I was running a division and um, a, something I had started, but I benefited, you know, human resources yeah. and finance and accounting and accounts receivable and accounts payable and,
0: and you know, legal. legal. Style, yeah.
1: And like there's a, a whole myriad of stuff that corporations have on tap that is available to help their executive be successful. When you're on your own, you've got to build all those things. And oftentimes it's quite, cause you have to hire the right people. You know, hiring is oftentimes a crapshoot. Uh, you get better. I think over time as you do more reps, as you hire more people and you do more rep, and anything mm-hmm. you doing more reps you get better at it. And so you start to have instincts about people when you meet them, whether they're going to be a good fit culturally. Uh, but you're still going to miss. I mean, hiring is oftentimes a, it's a, you know, you want to improve your odds, but you're going to miss miss hire.
0: Well, it's like getting married after three dates. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, oftentimes it's one date. And, yeah. and so it's challenging. And that I think a lot of times as a young founder, entrepreneur, you don't know those things. And so I had to learn those things. I learned the hard way. The thing that was probably hardest about that business was I didn't understand the importance of distribution. And I think technology businesses, we sort of look at Silicon Valley as this sort of successful model for tech. And we think, hey, if we build it, they will come. What took me five years, because I'm slow, to figure out was that I could build this great technology platform and it could have the best, arguably the best platform in the business. But if I didn't, have distribution. If I didn't have a way to market it or really secure a distribution channel, it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, And so I didn't understand the marketing and the customer acquisition side of it. It took five years. And so we ended up having this fleet card. We struggled to really sell it to get customers on the platform. We ended up selling that business to US Bank, but we also ended up creating a bank processing system that we could do debit card processing for banks. And for five years, we only brought two banks on But then in 2010, we signed a deal with the American Bankers Association. And I remember the day we did the announcement, 120 banks inquired about this product. And all of a sudden, we went over the course of four years to 400 banks. It just exploded. And this was my first understanding of distribution. It was like this aha moment that took me five years to figure out that at the end of the day, you can build great technology. You can build a great product. It does not matter if you have not figured out distribution. So that was something I found pretty informative. In fact, when I eventually went on to start FreightWaves, the first thing I did was solve distribution. Yeah, I solved the marketing and distribution problem first because that was the part that I had screwed up most at Transcard and we'd burned a lot of money getting there and focused on products second. Because like I, if I own a distribution and I own an audience, you know this is a media guy, as a marketing first media guy. Yeah. If you own an audience, you can sell them product. Like it's so much easier. And this was sort of the lesson through Transcard is it took me a lot of time and money to figure out that piece of it. And that's the first thing when I went on to eventually start Freightways was the first thing I wanted to solve for. And so we built this really powerful media business inside of Freightways because I was trying to solve for distribution.
0: But before you started Freightway, you had Transcard and you ended up getting at it. You went through a rough patch. My dad fired it? me
1: in 2014. So, so that's twice? Oh, yeah. I <laughs> fired twice <laughs> from my dad. Is, uh, is that
0: a family tradition? It, it is. To?
1: I think there's a, a... Look, at the end of the day, he was justified for firing me. The company was about out of cash. So Transcard about ran out of money. Yeah. And the reason it ran out of money was we finally were growing. And when you're in a business that's in technology, I think a lot of people assume technology businesses... Uh, When they grow, because this is sort of the model that you sort of see these technology companies at the end of the cycle, right? Like they've already sort of passed the chasm and they're successful and they're scaled and they start throwing off a lot of cash, particularly software companies. But there's a point in a technology company where you have an incredible upfront investment to build the tech. But then you have the second part of the sort of cycle, which is you burn a lot of cash and investment, scaling up customers, customer acquisition, customer support. You oftentimes, when you build a tech, piece of software or a platform, you oftentimes have underinvested in pieces that customers want and demand. And so when you add customers to your platform, your costs actually exponentially increase. Well, this is exactly what happened to us is I finally had figured out this distribution problem. We had a bunch of people using the systems, but we had underinvested in infrastructure. And this was pre-cloud. This is before the cloud was a thing. So if you wanted to grow a business, you had to buy hardware. And in order to buy hardware, you have to buy these in payments you have to have redundant systems to systems. So we just ran out of money and my dad did not want to go raise. I wanted to raise outside funding. He didn't want to do it. So we were running out of money and he fired me because it was my fault.
0: Well, and we talked a little bit earlier about how difficult it is to work in a family business. And, and so you've worked in it and been fired by your dad twice. How's your relationship now?
1: Oh, I love him. He's uh, (laughs) I brought him into my last deal. Um, he didn't invest in freight waves. Um, he told me I'd be a bad CEO. So that's just another story in itself. (laughs) You know, he may be right. Maybe I am a bad CEO. Maybe I'm a good, effective entrepreneur founder. But at the end of the day, he did invest in it. And, um, I went out and raised a bunch of money with institutional investors, venture capitalists, and it's become a very successful business. And so I had the opportunity as sort of a side hustle to buy a magazine that I grew up reading, which was fly magazine. And, um, I've done, I think, seventeen acquisitions in that business. Bought a lot of other media businesses connected to aviation and, and now recreation marine.
0: Before and we get too far down there, Craig, I do want to go back to one thing. When you were in your transition between Transcard and Freightwaves, you mentioned you had some tough times.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I was, I was, uh, I took up full time drinking, so as an escape, I moved to Dallas. Uh, Transcard was out of money, and I think you know my whole social life was tied to that business. I think well, a you founder, started that
0: way as a twenty year old.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I when I am involved in a business project, everything was about the business. Yeah. And that's how I pretty much roll. It's like everything becomes about the business. So you're all in. I'm all in. That's just the way I roll. And when you do that, your whole social network revolves around a business. Well, I I'd gotten fired. Company's out of cash. I didn't want to tell my version of the story because it would hurt everybody who had worked in this business. So I just disappeared and I went to Dallas. And as an escape, as a way to sort of like cope with this, I took up full-time drinking and became a uh, a, a dysfunctional alcohol. <laughs> it wasn't functional at all. And um, I remember want, drinking to f- pass out. It wasn't even like I want to go to the bar and hang out. I'm literally chugging to diddly, literally just pass out because I just wanted to just go, right? You weren't in a good spot. I was not in a good spot. I was at a low. And uh, this became my life for- 10 months. And um that was it was a pretty uh not fun time.
0: How'd you turn the corner?
1: Oh, I gave up drinking. Uh Baylor University, Baylor Bears started to win <laughs> uh football. Like the thing is, like, I think when people are in, in a pretty tough spot, depression's an interesting thing. Cause like I had always been one of these people who'd not dismissive of, of mental health. Like people who had mental health, I thought it was a crutch, thought it was an excuse. And having gone through that experience myself, I think incredibly humbled me. I had a greater appreciation for what people's struggles are, but also because like I had it, I had this hubris that I like, that could never happen to me. I could never be so low. And I think you start to become when you're in a situation where you start, you have this very corrupt sort of thinking you start to realize, hey, and you become, I became far more empathetic to people's plights. Yeah. Much more so than I ever was before. And I think it was an important sort of experience to me. But the one thing you have in those moments is you want hope. Well, Baylor Football had been a pretty abysmal football team for many years. They started winning games, and I think it was just one little thing that gave me hope to sort of like, okay, I'll write out one more week of this, I'll write out one more season of this. And eventually, you get through the period and you're done with that. And I I ended up, you know, I gave up drinking. Uh, August 1st, 2014 was the last drink that I
0: had. Congratulations!
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember I went to a hotel. I was living with my ex-wife, which is a different story in itself. I, like, I had this big house and I lived in this little room and we weren't like in a relationship, but she wouldn't let me drink in the house. And so she threw me out of the house and I went into a hotel and I bought two bottles of wine, chugged them and it, I, I couldn't pass out. Because again, this is where my head was at. And then I ended up driving to the gas station, which is stupid, and bought a 12 pack of beer. And I still like, I eventually passed out and woke up with a raging headache and that was the last time I ever drank. I was like, what am I doing in my life? Like it sucked. And then how old were you? I was, uh, gosh, 30, 35.
0: So through your twenties, you're flying high and you can do no wrong. Pretty much. And yeah. Then your thirties, I guess. Well, reality like it catches up to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Like
1: you, it's your relationships with the people that are in your life. It's the relationships, you know, my personal life was a bit of a mess. Like it just like, there's moments where you have truth. And then the thing, the reality for me is, growing, but a very successful father and a very successful family, you're in many ways, you have all these opportunities available to you and failing is different for someone with all of that sort of safety net than failing with somebody who has nothing, like who starts with nothing. And I think that comfort gives you the, the room to fail, but it also doesn't give you the sense of failure, the way that someone who who had, had sort of hit rock bottom. So that period for me was sort of destroying the old ego, if you will, you know, getting rid of that person, that persona that was truly a fake in my own mind persona. Um, And having to sort of like almost shed off that skin, if you will, and sort of come into a completely different person. And so for me, that was the greatest moment of my life was being fired by my dad did the greatest gift he's ever given to me because it wasn't like he fired me and then, you know, he, it was just, it was, it was done. And for me, it was amazing. Cause like it was a, I had to do something for myself. Like I, I had been very successful building things and I had a, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, I'd always had a lot of energy to do it, but I never had to do it for myself. And in many ways having to go out and just do it and, and actually learning that I could do it. Cause I think in a lot of ways, as you grow up in a very successful family, you know, that you always had that, that safety net there. So you really don't ever sort of venture outside of it. And had my dad not fired me, I never, I probably never would have. Uh, but when he did it, he did me an enormous favor.
0: You know, that's an interesting term you use safety net because actually when my dad died uh, 16 years ago, or 17, that was the term I used. My safety net's gone. Yeah. And I get what you're saying in terms of, can I do it for myself? Yeah. You know, because when you're doing it under the auspices of U S express or, or, a big family. like a big,
1: successful, wealthy yeah. family that has, you're you know,
0: protected to a degree and you, you kind of question, well, what if I was not connected? Correct. I think there's a sense of, there's
1: a sense of entitlement that comes along with it. Yeah. There's a sense of, of doubt. There's a sense of Almost imposter syndrome, yeah. where you you don't know if you're as successful. For me, I think a lot of people go through a different part of that. They go through that life in their college days or their early twenties, where they sort of like are completely worthless, and then all of a sudden they sort of have like, like in college they're partying, they don't do much, and then all of a sudden they sort of come out of it, right? right. Like they're they're like, and for me it was delayed. For me, it was my thirties. And I think I just had to go through those moments where I, I was able to get my stuff together and sort of move on.
0: Based on what you're talking about, you pretty much yourself came to that realization and said, okay, now it's time to get busy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went to AA for two weeks and I stopped going and decided, it was going to be done with it? Yeah. And I made my mind up that I was never going to drink again. And um, that was pretty much it. So how, as you're coming out of
0: this... Where do you get the idea for FreightWave?
1: So I'm day trading. So I had a little bit of money saved up. Not a, not a lot, but I had burned. <laughs> I had lost it all day trading. And I was day trading trucking stocks. Now, at the time, U.S. Express was not public, so it was nothing like impropriety there. But it was a private company, but it was large. And I thought I could have the edge in understanding how the trucking market worked because, you know, I felt like I understood the market. And so I started day trading lost a lot of money. And I realized that the larger companies in the space... Oftentimes, you were the last to know when something changed, like when a market development happened. They were so insulated. In many ways, sort of my story was much like theirs in the sense that they had such big companies that, that the normal sort of pressures of a market don't impact them the way they do the smaller companies. And so there's this big connect where Wall Street would oftentimes sense things before they, the executives of these companies would sense it, and the market would respond to that. And I realized that through day trading, that there was a pretty big disparity between what was happening in the real world, in the market, and how these big companies perceived it. They were too big to feel it. Too big to feel it. They had these huge enterprises, and at the end of the day, trucking's a commodity, so it isn't, it isn't subject to the boom and bust. I mean, it is subject to the boom and bust cycle, but a lot of the big companies have sort of insulated themselves. These are blue chip. Think of yeah. the blue chip stocks are typically not as volatile as the, you know, as the really small companies. And so they have a lot of sort of advantages in the market. But I realized that no one—I was—I was day trading, uh, watching CNBC, and I remember they never talked about trucking as a barometer for the economy, and that is what gave me the idea to go. What's now Freightways was I realized that I had a knowledge of how the freight market worked, pulling on my early experience at Express Direct, as well as my understanding of the trucking industry, and I wanted to create a tradable instrument based on trucking and a data business associated with it. And that was what I set out to build at Freightways.
0: So, and I've heard you describe it as the Bloomberg of freight.
1: It's exactly what we've set out to build, is basically what Bloomberg does in the financial, think about what Bloomberg is in the financial economy is. They have a media business, they have a data business. They are effectively the information source for Wall Street. Big money, like, you know, they have competitors and on the media side in Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, But when it comes to actually empowering the way people think about markets and not consumers, but how the big money plays, the billion dollar, you know, in some cases, trillion dollar players, they're all connected to this Bloomberg ecosystem. And what Bloomberg has built in the financial part of the economy, I had used that as an inspiration for building freight waves. Didn't get there initially. I I wanted to create a data business. CNBC was a good analogy for me, but then Ted Ailing, a local successful founder, entrepreneur, who had sold his freight business, sent me Michael Bloomberg's biography, Bloomberg, I think it's Bloomberg by Bloomberg, uh, his autobiography. And I read it, and that has become our playbook for creating what's become Freightways. We have a media business. uh, We have an enormous amount of of editorial resources that provide context to the global freight market and and supply chain. And then we have a high-frequency data business, which provides market intelligence to people that are in supply chain.
0: So, on the media side, how can the average Chattanoogan view Freightwaves?
1: You go to freightwaves.com and you can see we, you know, we stream about five hours of streaming video a day, which looks like a a broadcast television network. Uh, It has a lot more charts than you would Mm -hmm. typically see, like a local news affiliate. But effectively, you have reporters that are reporting on these topics that people care about if you're in supply chain. And the reason it sounds like a really boring topic. And I remember when we first started Freightwaves, people were like, How could you possibly build a media business based on freight? Like, it's really boring. And then all of a sudden, now they're like, what's interesting about it is what's happened since COVID and what's happened uh, in recent months with the Red Sea and so forth. People now understand that there is a need for supply chain. Like, I no longer have people ask the question, how could you do this? Like, how can this be successful to where, oh, that's really cool that you guys are like on the front lines of what's happening geopolitically and the economy and stuff. But this was not understood in 2017. And so, but what we do is our media business, our our, um, TV resources are providing information. And if you're a decision maker, let's say you run an auto plant, say you're the chief of supply chain of Volkswagen in Chattanooga, and the president tweets, if he doesn't get his wall paid for by the Mexicans, that he's going to shut down the border. Now, what happens with that? And he gives you a week notice. What happens with that is all of a sudden Volkswagen's supply chain executives who are dependent upon an open border and a free flow of trade between the two, between Mexico and the United States, are getting calls from the CEOs of the company, are getting calls from suppliers and vendors, and everybody's scrambling to figure out what do we do in a situation where this border can be shut down. They oftentimes don't have enough information about, um, because the market is so fragmented, the global supply chain is fragmented, fragmented, they need to know, well, how do I respond to these issues? When COVID hit, I remember it was January of 2020. Uh, I was up in Nashville telling a bunch of air freight executives that this virus was coming to the United States eventually, and it was going to completely destroy the way the airlines work. Um, there's a lot of skepticism. But our job is to interpret these events, whether they're geopolitically or economic events, and be on the leading edge of providing information so that companies can respond to that. And really, it's it's short-term information about things that are happening right now, like what's happening currently in the Red Sea, with container ships being fired upon by the Hutu rebels, that information—if uh, you're running a furniture store or you're running a retailer—you can get information from the major media businesses, you know, the major news outlets. But you don't get a ton of context on what it means for a supply chain. And our job is to reach to help translate that information to companies that are interested in it.
0: So you're interpreting what all those things mean, almost like you were talking about earlier, a company being too big to feel what's happening on the ground.
1: Every company is too big to feel. And the reason I say that is, or too big to know, and what I mean by that is they feel it, but they may not have enough information. I mean, we're talking millions of companies in the United States that are involved in the supply chain. The supply chain is 40% of the U.S. economy. And that means 40% of businesses are in logistic-dependent businesses. And what we mean by that is, if there was no logistics, the products could not move, those businesses would cease to exist. No different than if we lost power, like a computer company or a software company would cease to exist. And so they're so tied into what happens and the disruptions that happen in the Red Sea or happen because of COVID or happen because of the border in Mexico or some strike, uh, you know, that happens with, uh, you know, UPS people. Like all of this has an impact on businesses and if you're responsible for making sure that your business can run, because you're in either retail or you're in manufacturing or whatever, you need information that you can inform. You need to be informed about that. And that's who our audience is, is we're helping those companies understand what's happening. And in many ways, we get to play the role of a sports caster. Right. And you know, a lot of times we hire people who are former truck drivers or former logistics professionals. Where no different than if you're, you know, you're ESPN and you're hiring people who used to be on the field, former coaches or former football. Makes sense. And they're talking about these events as if they're on the front lines.
0: Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time, I want to get to two things. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing now with acquiring all these legacy brands of media?
1: So I fell in love with media. In fact, if you'd asked me six years ago, if I would be or seven years ago, if I'd be been in media, I would have thought you were nuts. Because like. I had gotten like C's and D's, I barely passed English and I had never published anything. And so the fact that I run a media business is somewhat shocking to my, myself. <laughs> and the fact that I'm you know, I'm, I'm decent at it, yeah. uh, I've got a knack for it is also shocking to me because it wasn't in an industry that I ever set out to, to think I was good at. What I learned through Freightways, so Freightways has effectively two business models. We have the media business, which provides top of funnel to our data business. And what I saw in providing media context to data is that we're able to, we own an audience. We're able to build an audience. And we're able to offer this high frequency data to these customers, and it's a very effective sales channel because it helps us engage these people. So when I bought Fly Magazine, it was because I, I'm a pilot and I grew up reading it, and you could call it a trophy asset, like. No one, you know, if I go to a cocktail reception and name drop it. No one's going to care. But to me as a pilot, it's a trophy asset. It was my sports illustrated growing up. And so for me, this was a passion project. I thought, Hey, this would be cool. I'll get, go hang out and like look at new airplanes and stuff. Um, and so that's the reason I bought it. But being an entrepreneur, I also, when I acquired it, I thought there are so many other businesses that I could sell this audience services and products to this audience that this, this is what I call a content supported X model, which is I own the content on the audience. There are other products that can sell them. And so what we've done in it is we have bought two e-commerce businesses. We have a third, we're going to close on at the end of the month. We have a finance business where we help people finance aircraft. Cause if you're We've bought a bunch of these marketplaces. So we've done a bunch of acquisitions. We've bought 35 brands in aviation, a bunch of other sort of legacy magazines and media sites that are all about aviation, from everything from learning to fly all the way to commercial pilots to military, and so forth, to so the whole spectrum of aviation content. And what I learned about that is if I own this audience and I learn all parts of the aspects of that audience, then there are other services I can offer them. So that's what we've done is we've gone out and bought. You know, A couple e commerce businesses and a finance business because when people are researching aircraft they want to buy, like when you go to buy a car today, you go to Car Gurus or you go to Auto Trade or whatever. And on those sites, you get pricing information, you get valuation information, you get a lot of historical performance information about that car that doesn't exist in aviation or did not exist in aviation. It effectively, if you want to buy an airplane, you would go to a listing site and then you would have to go to all these other resources, these other media sites to find. And oftentimes, we own them. To find resources, well, we ended up buying a bunch of marketplaces, and we built basically the car gurus of aviation, or the Zestimate. You think about homes is the Zillow price. The Zestimate has become ubiquitous with people looking at. We built that inside of flying, and the reason we buy it is we want to own the audience. So we use, subscri- you know, adver- media businesses uh, generate uh, revenue through advertising and subscriptions. We use that to monetize and to finance the acquisition. But what we're actually buying is the audience. Mm -hmm. We want to own that audience. And through that audience, I can sell them all sorts of things. We have two real estate projects. One is at Dallas Bay. One is in the Sequatchie Valley. Uh, We have two e-commerce businesses. We have a finance business. And it's all about we own this aviation audience. There are other products and services we can be offered.
0: I don't know when you sleep, Craig.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't actually. I have five kids, so I (laughs) don't get much. then you aren't sleeping. Those, you know, they... I go to bed oftentimes about 1.30. I'm just a night owl. I can't sleep before that. It's very hard. Uh, And then they they come up about 5.30. So they're morning people. I am not. Um, (laughs) And so they oftentimes interrupt what little sleep I get. Uh, But it's fun. Like, I love the media business. The media business is really powerful. And it's changing, too. It's changing so much. And it's really interesting how underinvested, in some of these legacy media businesses like what's interesting about the media business as a student media, I am not an expert at it by any stretch. I know a lot more about supply chain than I know about media. I just happen to be run a successful set of media companies. What's interesting about media is a short look at the history of it is, you know, years ago, the whole idea of I'm going to basically, I, I had this audience and I'm going to subsidize all of that through advertising was the, was the simple business model. And it was, if you owned a magazine or a newspaper, it was a license to print money. Well, the internet changed all that. Classified ads changed all that. All that went to the internet and it's made it so difficult for these legacy publishers to sort of survive because their business models are based on a bunch of rules that existed 20 years ago. And oftentimes the executives that learned how to run these businesses have, have not evolved their thinking around the way media businesses operate today. And I have the advantage of sort of not having an understanding of how it used to be, but look at it the way I want it to be and the way it is today. And that's given me a a lot of edge. But what it's also done is I can buy these media businesses. I'm glad they haven't figured it out. Uh, And I'm actually glad that a lot of other buyers aren't buying these companies because I can buy them Mm -hmm. pretty efficiently. And from that, I can then put them into the model that I think will work.
0: Well, that bodes well for the future of media because as someone who has been in the media business 35 years, you're absolutely right. Everyone's coming from a perspective of how it was.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in the print world, especially, like I think TV has been a little bit more uh, sort of because it's happened faster. I mean, TV by, and you know, this is a running in newsrooms is like TV has always been much more reactive and responsive to developments. I mean, When You run a TV network, you want to be the first to a show to break, you know, break a story. Whereas the print guys are next morning, right? They have a couple hours to get a story out. The magazine people have like a month. A month, yeah. And we're buying magazines. (laughs) We're buying the slowest group of sort of folks that have to adapt it. And that's the ones that we're bringing on to this sort of digital enabled world. And like what we try to do is digitize these audiences where they're oftentimes not digitized uh, and really um, find ways to sort of, you know, take that audience data and that intent data and drive to these out- other outcomes.
0: Well, it, it's really fascinating what you're doing and I can't wait to see it evolve and grow more. Um, I do want to ask you the last question, but before I do, I, I want to remind our listeners who makes this all possible. And you brought them up at the beginning of the podcast, Tennessee Valley Authority. I want to thank for sponsoring my morning cup, Follow TVA on social media to learn more about its multifaceted mission of service and visit TVA.com forward slash do good here to explore exciting TVA career opportunities. All right, Craig, last question. What would you tell that 25-year-old self is important for a happy life?
1: You know, I think um, the best thing that's ever happened to me was marrying my wife. And it's interesting, Sheryl Sandberg formerly at Facebook COO has a really powerful quote. It says the best career decision you can make is who you marry. And I think that is a really important thing because it, and oftentimes in these, in my relationships is if I had a relationship that was a unproductive or volatile or, or whatever, or it wasn't right in the relationship or it would create an enormous amount of stress and it would take away my ability to build the business. And I think oftentimes whom you decide to go on a journey of life with. And look, for people that maybe nobody, the worst decision somebody can make is being in a relationship with a partner where their goals are not aligned with yours and you're constantly in this battle of sort of f- trying to bring them along w- with you. And I think for me, the best thing that I ever did was marry my wife, who has been fully supportive of what I've wanted to do uh, and has grounded me And she's my boss. She keeps me in line. Everyone needs someone they're accountable to. And I think that has been my uh, opportunity uh, in my life. And look, when I went out and told her uh, I was going to start a business, she tried talking me out of it. She was very against it. Uh, But against, I didn't listen to her. I went and did it anyways. (laughs) I told her I would wait. uh, But then two days later, I told her I quit my job and she was like, this is crazy. Uh, But that support has been there. And I think that's probably the thing that I would say is the most important decision you can make is who you travel life with. Life's hard, man. Yeah. Like there's a lot of ups and downs and you need someone in your corner. And uh, that to me was an important development.
0: Such a great point. As someone who's benefited from a great partner for 36 years now, I couldn't agree with you more.
1: It's, I I think it's an underappreciated thing. And I think young people, the Instagram generation has spent so much time focused on the looks of somebody or how they're perceived. And I think oftentimes we discount the fact that like so much of your dreams and your livelihood, where you live, the types of, you know, decisions you make, the things you value, the things you buy, the kids, if you end up having kids or don't have kids or how you raise them is all is determined by this other part. And I think families are weird. Like, let's just think mm-hmm. about it. Like you have this like subculture inside of a family. I've had kids. So like, I, I don't get this. Have this conversation with my wife last night. Is it like, it's weird to like have this, you know, and I'm a bit older when I met my wife. She's a little, you know, she's a couple years younger than I am, but it's like, you have all this like life experience and you sort of merge them into one. And then you create this pod known as a family with little kids. And like, I don't know, it's just a, it's a very strange sort of a world. I think it's a little tribe. It's a little tribe (laughs) and you have your own little (laughs) counterculture and y'all get it. You're all your own. It's awesome though. I will say that it is, uh, it has been the best thing that's ever happened to me is all of that. And like, at the end of the day, the business could go to zero at any moment in time. Any of these businesses can go to zero. But like, what's nice about it is like you have someone who's there in your corner Yeah. that is going to support you regardless of where you end up.
0: That's such a great point. Uh, you're right. They're there for you. And that's what counts. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time to come and do it. Happy to do it.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.